Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of August 13th, 2018. On this week's show, our colleague Jim Newell will join us to talk about Tiger Woods's near miss at the PGA Championship and Brooks Kepka's latest major championship win. SB Nation's Spencer Hall will also be here to discuss allegations of a toxic culture in the Maryland football program and the particular awfulness of college football fan bases. Finally, Sam Miller of ESPN will help us examine a baseball conundrum. The shift, which was supposed to be killing offenses, might actually be helping them. Joining me in Washington, D.C., fresh off his first ever appearance in Division I at the North American Scrabble Championship, it is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book Word Freak and the non-Scrabble books as well. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Uh, are we going to do Scrabble and Afterballs? Yeah, I'm going to do my, my Afterball about Scrabble, about the tournament. When are we going to talk about Stefanos Tsitsipas? we got to have him on the show. He did not play Scrabble. He's a tennis player, for those of you who don't know. Did you see the little tidbit I forgot to tell you in my uh, little behind-the-scenes for people? I like to text Stefan whenever the Greek tennis players do well. So in my texting of you, I didn't mention that Tsitsipas and uh, Maria Sakari, the Greek woman who's doing well on the tour now, like their parents actually played together and were friends growing up. It's like a beautiful Greek family. I like got to figure that the my big fat that the Greek high level tennis wedding, the high level Greek tennis playing community is probably <laughs> pretty small. Tsitsipas is really good though. Yeah, good looking guy. Played Nadal in the <laughs> final too. in Toronto. That too. Rooting for him. Let's go, uh, let's go Stefanos. 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 That's my name. Stefanos. Not Shosh. Stefanos. Stefanos. Go. Go, Greek guy. All right. Let's do golf. During CBS's broadcast of the final round of the PGA Championship on Sunday, some rules type person came on the TV to try to explain some rule, some like golf thing. But as you'll hear, our Dweeby rules official got drowned out by some super cool fans ringing the 12th green. Well, just like we had yesterday on the 16th hole, this shot now of Gary Woodland has uh, distorted the roundness of the hole, and uh, they'll use their equipment to restore the round edge to the hole. We got so that's what they're working on right now. And the crowd is working on a Tiger chant. Blah, 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 the roundness of the hole. We've got to we got to chant "Let's go Tiger!" People, unfortunately, the fans did not cheer loud enough. Tinkerbell died. Tiger Woods finished alone in second place at fourteen under par, two shots behind Brooks Kepka. Tiger's final round sixty four was his best final round ever in a major. His score of one thirty over the last thirty six holes was the best ever by anyone in the history of the PGA Championship. Slate's congressional and golf correspondent Jim Newell. 
joins us now. Congratulations on the golf being exciting, Jim. Thank you, Josh. I enjoyed watching on television this weekend. Uh, But you were sad. You really wanted Tiger to win. But he made you uh, remember what it was like to in the glory days. I I wasn't as sad as I thought it would be. I think it's because he finished so well and it wasn't like he got the lead and then just threw it away or something, which he sort of did at the British Open. Or I'm sorry, the Open Championship. But (laughs) he... uh, I, I was actually really, I don't know, I was very pleased afterwards with, you know, how he did. And he was just too far back um, in that final round going into it. So I was pretty happy. And he seemed happy, too. Yeah, I mean, on 18, Stefan, he made that long birdie putt. And it got, got him to within two of the lead. And he, like, it wasn't just a fist bump. It, it was, was like, like, an, it was like, it was like an I won point. a major championship. Well, he yeah. did all fist the bump. fist bumps. He did, like, you know, like Short, the full, long. like, lunging the one, one. The, like, high-raised one. Yeah. And then the little, you know, side one. So in your kind of, like, analysis of the history of Tiger fist, pump, fist pumping, mm-hmm. the speed, the volume, mm-hmm. was that, like, a major championship level? I am, like, so happy and proud to be back that like this is like a victory for me fist pump yeah sure i think in the in the in the taxonomy of tiger fist pumps this was a this was a a successful fist pump he was happy about something though it wasn't winning a tournament and i think tiger at this (laughs) stage in his life is allowed to be happy about finishing second yeah and i i mean there was a maybe a slim chance that Brooks Kepka could have, you know, hit it OB right on the 18th hole and double bogeyed or something. So there's a little bit of contention in there, but I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think that was all of it. It was more about just showing that he could get through the whole round when people were saying at the beginning of the week that he didn't have enough gas, you know, that he had, uh, he was pretty much done for the year. So I think, it, yeah, it was just him being excited to be back there. Yeah. And and I think the lead up to this, Jim, is of course the Tiger finished sixth at the Open Championship um, when he briefly Can't believe led. you're going for that bullshit too. <laughs> British Open. <laughs> and he briefly led on the back nine. And in this tournament, he bogeyed on the back nine. What was it? 13, 14, 14, 14 when he could have gotten into a tie. I mean, ultimately it didn't matter because Brooks Kepka birdied 15 and 16 and built enough of an advantage. So from purely Tiger perspective, because Brooks Kepka, um, whom we'll get to, you know, this was really, again, we had this conversation a month ago. This was really remarkable. The dude has fused bones in his back. The dude couldn't walk last year. The dude hasn't won a tournament in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the dude also seems more human. Michael Bamberger wrote on Sports Illustrated uh, last night. Don't, don't make gonna, us. You don't, know, oh, he's a good, oh, he shot 49 under. Good person. Great guy. No, Great guy. not a good guy. <laughs> Great guy. But certainly more generous in his comments, more self-aware, more self-aware in what he is saying, whether it's bullshit or not, the people buy it. The crowd <laughs> certainly buy it. The narrative works. The narrative Let's works. Go, and he's playing really well. I did see him between holes uh, actually uh, reciprocating some of the high fives from the kids who were holding their hands out, which doesn't mean that he is New now tiger. suddenly a good person again. Right. Well, in but he used to never do that. I think in he 2000, was... he would famously punch children in the face when they tried to, <laughs> to shake his <laughs> well, hand. Well, he would ignore He them. did not punch any children yesterday, as far as I know. So, yeah, he's a good person. He is a great person. I think that um, this was a case, as you wrote in your piece on Sunday, Jim, where this was a course – that was not like a major championship level difficulty. And so if, for example, 
at the British Open or the U.S. Open if on the front nine he had not hit any fairways. He might have shot like plus five or something. Yeah. But this was a course, and you also wrote like he was uh, driving the ball so badly that he was actually missing the rough and like going into the places where the gallery had trampled. Yeah, um, so then he could get clean lies and actually put some spin on the ball. And I mean, it was just the, I mean, the greens were all week just, you know, Soft. Not fast at all. They were just, you know, it was it was target practice. But the iron shots that he was hitting to seven feet, to five feet, to two feet, to one foot. I mean, as somebody who's not uh, a golfer and somebody who doesn't watch as often as you do, watching somebody, uh, you know, make those approach shots, those iron shots, it's like the equivalent of watching a basketball player shoot from, like, you know, make a, th- a three from 40 feet. It's like... The thing that a layperson can understand and it's like, holy shit, like that ball was really far away. And now it's like one foot from the hole. Yeah. It's it's magical. It seems magical. And I mean, that's really, you know, that as I wrote my piece, that's always been the strength of his game is his distance control and his precision on those approach shots. Like if you look at, you know, the stats from I think they started strokes gained in like 2004. He was number one in approach for like years in a row by like, a you know, a very wide margin. So, I mean, you know, he's never been the absolute best driver of the ball. He's worse than he used to be right now in terms of accuracy. But if, you know, his iron game is there, then he's one of the best players in the world. Uh, yeah. Tiger used to be renowned for his driving ability and his big muscles. And a lot of those traits have been assumed by a lot of players including Brooks Kepka, who was driving the ball like 340 when it mattered yesterday. Straight. Straight. In the fairway. Yeah, just lasers. And I mean, his long irons too, that shot he hit on 16, which was the 250-yard par three, and it just did not move at all. And it was, what, five feet from the pin or whatever? That was sort of a deflating shot for all of us who were rooting for (laughs) Brooks Kepka to blow it, which was everyone, except maybe his family. Maybe his family. Yeah, his greeting with his mom was like a little – I mean, I don't want to yeah. get get too, too deep there, it, yeah. but like uh, when his mom – they made this like big Jim thing. Nance, of course, made a big thing. About, about oh, his mom is going to surprise him, and then he sees his mom and goes, how are you? <laughs> I <laughs> think he actually odd. said, how are you? Sorry, my intonation was wrong. Whatever he said, it was in the how are you family. Anyway, this dude is like so fucking beefy. He's like – he looks like Mike Trout or something. Oh, I was going to compare him to Mike Trout, actually, Josh, because... Because nobody cares about him? Because nobody cares about <laughs> him, and he's really fucking good, and nobody's really paid attention to just how good he is. Brooks Kepka has won three majors in the last two years. In his last six starts, yeah. He has finished 21st or better in 12 of his past 13 majors with seven top 10s, 12 top 15 majors in the last four years. This is really good. Yeah, I don't know why he doesn't do it in the rest of the tournaments. I mean, he doesn't need to. They don't matter like the majors do. But I think that's part of why because he only – he appears just in these like moments and otherwise he's sort of background noise. But the thing is, that, I, is that at all why you don't like him because you're watching his other tournaments and you're like, dude, well, no, I actually do like him and I like his game a lot. I just want Tiger to win. So anyway. <laughs> but why do you think he's not as popular or fans don't seem to – enjoy watching him play as much as, you know, somebody like Ricky Fowler, who's never won a major, Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth. I would say all all those are obviously more well-known than he is, and I think fans like them better, too. Well, he's I mean, he's not a very compelling personality, which he doesn't have to be, but I just think, I mean, you know, look at his reaction to the win yesterday, you know, yeah, the, the awkward meeting with the mom, but also just, you know, tapping it in, not really celebrating at all. He's just very low-key. I mean, they're, you know, 
I think, you know, Jordan Spieth is like a psycho on the course, so it makes him very fun to watch. And also, he's not the most, you know, physically gifted. So when he does things, you know, it, it sort of comes out of the blue, whereas you used to see like an athlete like this and they just well, it demolish like che- everyone. It's like, okay, that happened. We talked about this a little bit with the U.S. Open. Like, it just seems like cheating for somebody who's good at sports to play golf. It's yeah. like, should not be allowed. No, I was... I was wondering about that too. Like Brooks Kepka is maybe the only golfer who could actually realistically play another professional sport. Well, don't people say that about Dustin Johnson? But it's just maybe no, not, it's true. Probably not. Yeah, true. I don't think yeah, that's they true. They just want to believe that. Yeah, I mean Dustin Johnson could tall. play like D three college basketball, maybe. But like Brooks, I don't know. He could play another sport, and you wonder if you get the actual athletes who could play other professional sports to play golf, then. I don't know. It's just going to be a completely different game. And what's really boring so keep about the real athletes away. What's really boring about the Brooks Kepka storyline is the way he has approached it. He's sort of he has taken on this this mantle of the underdog. He is dissed. He's only got ninety seven thousand followers on Twitter compared to like one point six million for Ricky Fowler. Um, he was oh, he's overlooked by golf writers. Um, he was pissed off that. Um, the Golf Channel didn't list him as one of the day one notables during the U.S. <laughs> Open. I mean, seriously, he was pissed off about what the Golf Channel put up on a on a graphic. Well, he was the defending champion, right? That and he was, notable. and he wasn't picked for like the President's Cup a couple years ago. So there is fodder there for this guy to be upset, but really, like. Well, I, you know, he also says, I don't but, care about anything. Well, but as Jim was saying, he manifests being upset in the just absolute most boring way possible. Like Jordan Spieth has the great combination, like marketing wise, of being a guy who comes off as being like really humble, but on the course just acts like a lunatic. Whereas right. Kepka on the course just like acts like he doesn't care. And I'm sure he does, but he acts like he doesn't care. Yeah, it was it was interesting because I saw that story about Brooks Kepka being mad about being underappreciated. And then in the press conference last night, someone asked him, like, you're, you have three wins now. You're likely to be a Hall of Famer, a lock to be a Hall of Famer. Do you think you'll get the recognition you deserve? He said, hope so. And they looked at the <laughs> moderator and said, next question. <laughs> so I don't know. He doesn't really like talking about it, but apparently it bothers him. Um, I think we should get back to um, Tiger. I think it was actually like – Or maybe all- golf needs more monomaniacal lunkheads <laughs> just to bring the sport to, 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 to the realm of other sports. All, go- all golf broadcasts are bad. But um, I think that we should give CBS some credit actually because I think it was Peter Costas who was on the course who was like honest about like nobody is paying attention to this last group like the Kepka group everybody's following tiger woods and he was like doing it in a little bit of a shamey way it's like you missed a lot of great shots out here when you were paying attention to tiger but i appreciated the fact that they were being upfront about that and it seemed like it was a totally different event not just for fans because tiger was there but for the players like all the players talked about hearing all the the cheers and like the 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 level of the loudness and like feeling like, you know, guys like Justin Thomas and Kepka and whoever who weren't around in 2000, that they never experienced this before. Like, that was cool to see, that it's not just like a, a construct that we put on it as fans, that it is actually a totally different experience for the guys as well. well yeah, I mean, the, the other golfers on the course seemed to, I mean, they were almost fans too, because they just, you know, in, afterwards were talking about what it was like being out there with all the roars. Like, Brooks said that, you know, you would yeah, hear our sport is usually like super boring and nobody cheers, but like this was kind of cool. <laughs> well, well, Kepka said afterwards that you you know would hear the initial roar when uh, there was a birdie, and then you would hear 
every couple of minutes another roar when it would be posted at the score at the scoreboard at the next hole. Like just yeah. sort of cascading around the course. The thing that that makes me think of, Stefan, and maybe Jim will disagree. Is the wave. <laughs> that, it does make me think of the wave, but also just how dumb it is to actually go to a golf tournament and watch. Like there are people <laughs> who are literally cheering because a number changed on the scoreboard. It's like, I'm sitting at home. I actually got to watch the shot and I like don't have to be outside in the heat, you idiot. Yeah, I mean, I actually, I don't actually like going to golf events that much either for the same reason. Well, it's like going to a cycling race or something. It's like, wow, wow like you just went went by. I'm I mean, going to go just, home now. You, I mean, you're just sort of positioning yourself the whole time. But I mean, I don't know what those people who were seeing the, you know, score change on another hole like five holes away, what, what were they watching? You know? <laughs> <laughs> why, why weren't they in the crowd? Maybe they don't like crowds. Yeah. I don't know. I Can mean, we get back to the the other weird thing about the end of the PGA Championship on 18? You said he just tapped in and he didn't show any emotion. He also didn't go last. Yeah. I mean, he – Adam Scott was putting for money and Kepka's explanation was that he didn't want his mark to be in Scott's sight line. So he wanted to get the ball out of there uh, yeah, and be weird. finished with it. But still, it's a – freaking major championship i'm sure adam scott would have been fine putting the ball well, adam scott looked at him marker. almost like what are you doing like stop <laughs> and i guess nick faldo was screaming like stop 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 you know yeah i mean i guess the point is that kepka just has no sense of the moment no sense of how to market himself doesn't seem to to have much interest in it and yet at the same time is like mad correct that people don't respect yes. him enough it's like you gotta you gotta get those things in alignment my friend he was mad that tom watson sally jenkins wrote in her column on uh, after the tournament once mistook him for a club pro <laughs> which i guess would be kind of humiliating if you were a professional golfer use it to fuel your uh, your your passion brooks all right jim uh probably the next time we're going to talk to you i mean we might we might never have you back on but i like you i think we'll I think you we'll don't do want to talk after uh, the greensboro tournament next week window no. last well, chance to get fedex cup points ahead of the playoffs <laughs> we'll see what happens but i think oh, the, the playoffs are coming the playoffs are coming yeah, i think the biggest re- news of the day tiger was 20th on fedex cup points now all right, mark it down. <laughs> Will I he think, make the team? <laughs> I think the Ryder Cup is the next thing Ryder that Cup we're going to be thing, yeah. talking about. Ryder, uh, Ryder Tiger is going to be the uh, one of the the picks, the extra picks because he didn't qualify automatically. But like the thing that I find interesting here is like how you wouldn't think of golf as being like totally cyclical just because dudes come on the tour and like play for 30 years but wasn't it just like a few years ago where i was like all the best players are in europe then i was like looking at the the american team and it's like brooks kefka jordan spieth dustin johnson like you know tiger woods is gonna be on it's like it seems like all the best players are american now what happened is that wrong? There was a there was a real glut there when Phil wasn't playing very well, and uh, I mean Tiger was gone, and I think it was like sort of Spieth was just beginning. So it was Patrick Reed also won a major this year. Yeah, like the the 2014 team it was like the best player was like you know Ricky, and then like Jim Furyk was playing well at the time, who is now the captain. So I mean it, but I would not. Underest- Are there theories around why there are so many good young American players now, or is it just like eh, sometimes? Guys are good. I don't know. I think it's maybe just the the you know generation start playing when Tiger played finally came, you know. Into that's a reality. good explanation, Jim. I think that's good. it. I like that one. I just made that up a little bit. I, I would not sleep on you know Europe either. Like it was look. I mean, they have Tommy Fleetwood, who's a star now. John Rahm will be playing in his first Ryder Cup. I mean, those are the good two list editions. of guys who have never won majors. Keep going. I like it. I guess you'll have well, you have Rory, Terrell, Hatton. 
Tyrell uh, Hatton. Tyrell Hatton. <laughs> okay, that was whoever week one. And now I'm blanking on the rest of the list. But they have a good team. Justin Alex Rose. Justin Rose. Oh, Justin Rose, yeah. You could go with that. Anyway. Who's the number three player in the world, yeah. Anyway, uh, we will be watching the Ryder Cup, probably. That could be fun. Jim Newell is going to be watching Greensboro next week. We won't be, but let us know if anything interesting happens. I will. Thank you, Jim. All right. Thank you. Before we get to our conversation about the Maryland football program, wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, one of our other guests this week, Sam Miller of ESPN, is going to chat with us about the hilarious, what do you say, Stefan? The uh, amusing rise of position players pitching in baseball. It's a uh, phenomenon that's been around for a while, but it's exploded, exploded in 2018. We will assess. If you want to hear that conversation, you should just uh, join up with Slate Plus. It's $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Saturday, the University of Maryland placed its football coach, DJ Durkin, on administrative leave with the school's athletic director, saying he was concerned by the allegations of unacceptable behaviors by members of our football staff detailed in recent media reports. Those allegations, as enumerated by ESPN on Friday, came in the aftermath of the death of 19-year-old offensive lineman Jordan McNair, who suffered heat stroke at a practice in May. Joining us now to discuss is Spencer Hall of SB Nation and the Shutdown Fullcast podcast. Hey, Spencer. Oh, hey, y'all. How are you doing? Good. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, as I mentioned, McNair collapsed and died after doing sprints at a practice. And there are allegations that it took an hour after he first started showing concerning symptoms for someone to call 911. The investigation into his death is ongoing, but both current and former players allege that this is not an isolated incident, um, that under DJ Durkin, Maryland has a coaching environment based on fear and intimidation, where belittling, humiliation, and embarrassment of players is common, with strength and conditioning coach Rick Court, who has also been placed on administrative leave, reportedly among the worst offenders. And when I say it's not an isolated incident, I mean that there was this culture that encouraged players to go beyond what they were capable of doing and that the thought and belief is that that may have contributed to McNair's death. I mean, Spencer, reading that report, this seemed like a classic case of the scandal being what's normal because this awful behavior, which was indeed awful, um, sounded a lot just like football coaches acting like football coaches. Yeah, it's... Very odd, and, and the, a weird coincidence for me is that this story drops this weekend, and then I, late on Saturday night, I'm sitting there watching the ESPN four-part documentary on Alabama football, which is all access. And the theme for Nick Saban that day was, and I kid you not, what breaks you? What's going to break you? Where's your breaking point? I just thought they're so close to this line right here. Right. If you're working 
in conditioning and trying to find out um, what you have in a football player, pushing the limits of their bodies physically and pushing them mentally, you're right there at that line. And I think that, you know, I'm trying to be as careful as I can, which I don't really want to be here because I think it is an abusive environment. But I also know that sometimes if you take a bunch of athletes and you line them up and you push them really, 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 really hard, then occasionally one of them is going to react very, very badly to it for a lot of reasons. Um, the notion that you're breaking someone down to build them back up again is a trope in football, um, not just with strength coaches, with all coaches. Um, the idea being that I need to own the athlete, that the only way the athlete can submit to the rigors of this sport, which will develop him as a man, is to humiliate and physically and emotionally pressure and, in some cases, abuse him. When it comes to college programs, Spencer, it seems to me that, you know, the one thing that always gets overlooked is where's the oversight? Where was Maryland's president? Was he down at the field checking to see how the most highly paid employee in the state probably is treating his Let's call them employees. Um, is there any oversight of the of, of, of the program and how it's being conducted, what the mores are, what the policies are, what the philosophies are? You know, the, the president of Maryland issued a statement over the weekend saying our responsibility as teachers is to inspire and enable students to perform at their best and expand the boundaries of their potential in the classroom and or on the athletic field. Give me a fucking break. Yeah, I, I think that there's an odd NCAA rule here, by the way. The head coach can't be there for these workouts. They're not supposed to be there for these workouts. These are off-season voluntary conditioning workouts in a lot of cases, and they're not supposed to be there. That leaves the strength coach as the missing link here, and the people who oversee strength and conditioning are, you know, have to be in lockstep with said coach. This is the reason they make as much money as they do. It's not necessarily because they are as valuable as strength and conditioning coaches alone. It's because they serve as the coach in place and manager of the program during periods where they cannot have contact with position coaches. Um, that's that's by NCAA rule. So if you're wondering where the oversight was, it should have been in the strength and conditioning people. And and I really don't know much about Maryland strength and conditioning crew. I know that they're a mixed bag. I know that DJ Durkin's first hire was the strength and conditioning coach. Court in this case, that's not unusual, by the way. And I know that a lot of the time there are a lot of things that can can cause you know these sort of sudden fatalities in terms of strength and conditioning. I know one thing that's not going to look good for Maryland here is the surrounding culture, and I know that another thing that's not going to look good for Maryland is the reaction to that. Like I, I don't think this is going to play out well for them at, at any point. I don't think, by the way, that you can entirely reduce the risk of of sudden death. Period from strength and conditioning or from workouts. I mean, it, it's possible. It doesn't seem likely given what we already know, but it's possible yeah. that Maryland didn't do anything wrong in the specific case. And yet when you turn over the rock, you see all of these, you know, creatures underneath it. And maybe we would see, um, you know, similar stuff if we looked at other programs, but the program we're looking at right now is Maryland. So let's right. look at it. Um, it cannot be overstated how central these off-season programs are 
to program self-images and cultures. They go under different names, whether it's the fourth quarter program, but they all have like very similar mantras around, you know, we put in all this work in the off season so we don't get beat during the season. And just, you know, you see YouTube videos that programs put out of guys like running up hills and dragging chains and all this stuff. And I think, Stefan, there is something to the idea, the reason that it's such a cliche in football about not necessarily breaking someone down to build them back up, but pushing somebody to their limits is that at high in high level sports, you actually do need to do Absolutely. that to succeed. It's just it often gets aggregated in football, um, pushing somebody to their limits and acting like a total dickhead while you're doing it. And those two things don't have to go together. I mean, the stuff that ESPN reported about, like throwing weights at players, forcing them to eat candy bars in front of the team as a like humiliation technique, like mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with, with like making a, a dude athlete. run sprints or becoming better at football. I mean, that's about emotional control, right? If I if eating candy bars made you better at football, I would be Randy Moss, right? And this is this is also this is also some sort of laid on grafted old military stuff that even portions of the military don't do anymore in terms of collective punishment and reinforcement, right? If you want to know a difference that did not a divide that Maryland doesn't seem to have taken here or a, a choice, different choice that they made culturally. If you talk to Nick Saban about, you know, okay, what you're doing is really, really hard, right? And it's personally difficult. The thing that they will tell you is to say, we try to criticize the performance, not the performer, right? When you criticize the performer, suddenly we get all of these really degrading, nasty, um, generally malicious, harmful uh, things that are going to make your organization do certain things, defer to power unquestioningly, right? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe humiliate the individual to the point where, yeah, that's going to corrupt the team and their performance, right? It's going to corrupt your recruiting. This stuff gets out. There's one other angle here that I, is not original. It is not new. Uh, it has happened and it will continue to happen. When the administration of a university is unhappy with a coach, suddenly we start hearing about player abuse. We don't hear about it before right. then. We don't hear about it when you got 10 wins under your belt and a nice bowl game and things are going swimmingly. We hear about player abuse when you get unhappy with the progress of the program overall. Which right? goes back to my point about university administrations and the lack of oversight oh, yeah. of football programs. Yeah, I mean, as far as player abuse goes, um, I think we need to listen to this clip of Will Muschamp, who worked with DJ Durkin, the Maryland coach who's been put on leave. They worked together in Florida, and Muschamp, who's now the head coach at South Carolina, had this press conference where he was asked about Durkin. He started out by saying he's a great man and all that uh, stuff that one says about uh, you know a guy that you've you've coached with who's accused of terrible things. Um, and then he went on on this rant uh, that I think we should listen to now. There's no credibility in anonymous sources. You know, if that former staffer had any guts, why didn't he put his name on that? I think that's gutless. And in any football team, especially right here in August, you can find a disgruntled player that's probably not playing. I think it's a lack of journalistic integrity to print things with anonymous sources. Spencer, this is a phenomenon that uh, I guess we can call wagon circling. Um, Will Muschamp sounds like a college football fan. 
there. Um, this is what fans of Ohio State have been saying, what fans of Maryland have been saying about, you know, rather than be alarmed by, um, you know, media reports about their programs, it's, you know, this is biased. Who are the sources? Um, is this coming from some other program? Like, what, what, what is everyone's incentive here? Let me jump in there, though, and point out that ESPN's reporting did not rely exclusively on anonymous sources. Uh, former defensive lineman Malik Jones was quoted about Durkin getting in my face, pointing his finger in my face and calling me explicit names and things of that nature. Um, he called me a bitch and stuff like that. JT Ventura, former safety, said... They actually called some players thieves for being on scholarship and not being very good. Uh, during some of the workouts, there were kids who were really struggling, and Coach Court, the strength coach, he'd keep on yelling. He would use profanity a lot, try to push kids when they reach their limit during workouts. So, no, not just anonymous sources, though the mm. anonymous sources did supply the, 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 the basis for the story about the culture of the program writ large. Mm -hmm. I'd also caution any coach against criticizing the use of anonymous sources when they sure. might be the ones leaking, either directly or indirectly, to reporters for favorable coverage, or because they like them, or because they just like to talk. I don't think any coach should do that, Will Muschamp included. How else are you going to get a higher salary by putting yourself in contention for every job during the offseason? Uh, you know, you know winning. Uh, in Will Muschamp's case, I suggest winning and having an <laughs> offense. <laughs> What about um, college football fan bases in particular, Spencer? Do you think occasions this kind of like paranoiac thinking and wagon circling and the idea, you know, we saw this at Florida State with Jameis Winston, you know. Which Josh wrote about on Slate. You know, credibly accused of sexual assault. Okay, let's attack the woman who accused him because we want uh, uh, our quarterback to not only – you know, stay on the field, but also like be a good person, I guess. I mean, what what is your like kind of analysis of what about college football in particular makes this um, so prevalent? Well, it's extremely tribal, right? We, we are a lot of the people are extremely similar. So the delineations and the identity has to be starkly written or constructed, right? Florida State fans and Florida fans are pretty similar. Therefore, there have to be very firm lines between the two because who knows, you might just wander over there, right? If you're, um, if you're very different, you don't actually have to do this a lot, right? But if you're in the SEC, for instance, where, I don't know, it's a pretty similar slice of people rooting for all the teams, right? You have to make the gradations pretty dramatic. So I think tribalism is one of the things that drives the sport and in order to have that, you have to you have to circle wagons pretty tightly. Another thing is is that this is the nature of of coaching, particularly football coaching, where information's at a premium, and you don't want to give away anything. And there's so much to give away, right? These are big systems. You have 11 people on the field, and they all have different assignments, and it gets so complex. And information flow is is job one, and and football because everybody has to know their job, and there are so many jobs and so many things to know. Therefore. Uh, the more information I can control, the better I'm going to be at this, and that includes the you know the art of of both you know signal stealing and signal keeping, and that includes information you might know about my program, right? So that's why coaches get paranoid. Coaches get paranoid because they're control freaks because they have so much to control. 
And this is uh, the good ones, by the way, aren't. You know, I think a lot of good ones aren't control freaks, right? Uh, at least in terms of information about you know what they're doing on the field. Pete Carroll used to have open practices, man. In college football, though, it also seems that the wagon circling extends sometimes to media. It's not just fans. I mean, everything is partisan. I mean, in in the uh, ongoing issue at Ohio State, where former assistant coach Zach Smith uh, was has been accused of uh, domestic abuse, there's a reporter who is like on the side of, of, of doling out information and quotes specifically from the Zach Smith defense, basically. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and who is Buckeye's the insider, Jeff Snook. He wrote a book called What It Means to Be a Buckeye. The foreword of the book was written by, drumroll please, Urban Meyer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's, a, he's alleged that the tip about how Zach Smith was an abuser came from Tom Herman, who's now the Texas coach and was formerly at Ohio State. He's like posted all of this stuff on, on Facebook. Facebook well, about- he, he quotes from uh, Smith's mother and the daughter of former Ohio State coach Earl Bruce um, defending Smith and saying that his ex-wife raised these allegations as part of a vendetta against her ex-husband. Yeah, I mean, it's mm-hmm. partisan media, basically, sure. is what it is. It's like reading something that, I mean, it's obviously on a less important subject, but it's like in recruiting, right, Spencer? It's like you can subscribe to a service that will tell you that the school that you like is going to get every good player in America, and because that, that's what people want to read. It's like gets a little darker when the thing you want to read is that our coach who's won all these national championships did not abet domestic abuse. Yeah, and this is the thing that if you're a fan— uh, I can't really tell you not to believe that. That's pointless, right? It's 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 pointless for me to point out if you're an Ohio State guy who says, um, and it is an Ohio State guy for the most part, right, who would definitely take Urban Meyer's side in this 100% and not have any reservations, right? Um, I think it's pointless for you to go, hey, you're you're really reading what you want to be true here because I can only tell you these things. Right. I can only show them to you and say, yeah, you know, the guy who's saying this is um, he's pretty much a paid homer. Right. And and that's a complex thing to tell somebody. You can only sort of let it wear out over time because people are visual learners. You can tell them you can show them all kinds of evidence. They're going to have to actually see it right in action. I think Penn State people who were maybe super skeptical of the Sandusky slash Paterno scandal really only started to come around when they saw the demonstrations at Penn State and when they saw the trial and it really started to make sense to them that, oh, maybe I'm not exactly getting what I thought I was getting in this story. And even then, I don't think there's going to be people who are going to budge. You just have to say, and I think this is a larger point, there's 30 to 35% of people who are working by uh, faith and not sight alone, and there's not much you could do about them. The other thing that I would say about college football fan bases and tribalism, particularly around whether it's criminal behavior or you know, bad behavior that's specific to the program, like when I wrote about Florida State, I got a bunch of people who responded who said, well, why?" just like Spencer said, why aren't you writing about Florida? They've had a lot more people get arrested, which might be true. There are a lot of dudes who got arrested at Florida. Or people might say, you know, at LSU, Ed Ogeron um, was accused of re- repeatedly attacking a woman in the early 90s and was put in this, um, you know, program for 
for alleged domestic abusers or, you know, an LSU player just got arrested for, you know, uh, being the getaway driver, uh, you know, accused of being the getaway driver in robberies in the offseason. And the explanation for, like, why am I not talking about that? It's like, you can't talk about everything all the time. Like, today we're talking about Maryland. We're talking about Ohio State. There's um, awful people everywhere. And just because you're not talking about every awful person and every second of every day doesn't mean that those people aren't awful and that you're biased. Yes, we haven't talked about Michigan State and Larry Nassar, and we haven't talked about Ohio State and the wrestling program and the abuse of, of wrestlers there. Um, Spencer, I want to bring this back to Maryland, though, because we are talking about Maryland. And the, the, the question that is bouncing around in my head is, what now? What, you know, in, a, in, a, in an ideal world where football wasn't God, where these universities seek to shield culpability, cover their asses, and avoid any sort of serious consequences for this kind of malfeasance, up and up to and including the death of a young man. What do we do? Should there be a criminal investigation of the coaching staff? Should this program have been shut down the day the player died? Um, well, should it be shut down now? The family is going to take legal action, yep. obviously. Um, who should be the responsible authority here? Is it the university? If the university doesn't live up to its obligation to oversee this sort of stuff, who should it be? Should it be the NCAA? Well, maybe Maryland didn't violate any rules here so the NCAA can wash its hands of this. Um, but they're sure going to be there to make sure no Maryland kids get paid for selling their cleats on eBay. I mean, a lot of what should happen goes sort of hand in hand with what I think should happen with college football fandom. That uh, one, don't let whataboutism distract you here even if emotionally it'd be really satisfying no this is an issue and you should deal with it there are other issues we have the competence focus and time on our hands to deal with them all but maryland right now we're talking about you right later we can talk about somebody else but for regarding maryland the time for that discussion is now um i think another thing that is going to happen here is that there are a lot of existing rules that are going to play out, uh, I think, for the benefit of the entire situation. Um, I think a lot of those are maybe disingenuously handled, but they're still going to happen. For instance, Maryland will likely fire DJ Durkin for cause for player abuse. And if they fire him for cause, guess what they don't have to do? Pay him. They don't have, yeah, they don't have to buy him out, right? They can, they can pretty much, I think, skate on the minimum here and fire him immediately and that's what's going to happen he's put on administrative leave the story this was by the way this was not something that i I think was a secret uh among college football media particularly those working around them i think it was generally known that things were going badly there and anytime you say you hear rumblings of yeah things are going bad there and then you see a player abuse story pop up you go yeah, this is this is people pushing to get him out, especially to get him out on time so that they can just give this season a wash, line up their next coach and, and move forward. That's real program centric and cold. That's also the way they've done it. And again, it's happened at places like Indiana and Illinois. Um, it, it'll continue to happen. This is this is something that you could fire, you know, I think several coaches for across the country right now if you just sliced it just the way you wanted it to and if the timing was right. Because I think there are a lot of programs on this. That is Spencer Hall of SB Nation. He's also uh, a part of the Shutdown Fullcast podcast. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back in June, David Waldstein of the New York Times wrote that many in baseball fear that defensive shifts have simply made it too difficult to get hits, while agent Scott Boris has argued that shifts uh, in which a whole gaggle of defensive players bunch up on one side of the field have essentially broken the game. But in a piece for ESPN.com last week, Sam Miller presented evidence that the prevailing wisdom on the shift is wrong. Mr. Miller, who is the co-author with Ben Lindbergh of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, joins us now. Hello, Sam. Hello. How are you? Doing great. Uh, before we get into why the prevailing wisdom might be wrong, why don't you first explain to us in a little bit more detail what that prevailing wisdom is about the shift? All right. Well, the prevailing wisdom is that it works, uh, and in fact that it works so well that it might not be fair or that it might be making uh, baseball boring by suppressing offense. Uh, There have been, uh, you know, high-level conversations coming from the commissioner's office about whether the shift should be banned, whether there should be limits on where players can stand, which uh, heretofore positions have have basically just been a a social norm. There's nothing in the rule books that say where a left fielder stands or whether a left fielder even exists. Uh, pitcher is a real position because you have to stand on the mound. Catcher is a real position because you have to stand in the catcher's box. But everybody else was just a guy on the field. Uh, and uh, the idea is that the shift that, that players have, have gotten so good at defending batted balls that we might actually have to put restrictions on where they could stand and sort of codify some of those things. And the shift in its most common form is putting three infielders on one side of the infield so as to suppress essentially ground balls that would have gone through the hole by pull hitters. It's going to go to a fielder at this point. And we've gotten the the conventional wisdom is we've gotten so good at defensive positioning um, that these, you know, Guys are just losing hits everywhere. And and let me just add that there is the less used but not totally infrequent four outfielder setup. All of these shifts, of course, Sam, date back at least to the middle of the last century and in some cases back into the 19th century. The difference is prevalence. We're right. Just doing it yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the keys are that you want to get one fielder kind of pulled over and, and pretty deep so that if a power hitter pulls the ball hard – Uh, He's got a lot of range. And then usually you want to get another fielder right up the middle because such a huge percentage of base hits go right up the middle um, that uh, you want to have somebody standing there. Uh, But yeah, these have uh, periodically been uh, uh, played with throughout baseball history, most famously uh, uh, against Ted Williams and most famously by Branch Rickey. But about uh, 20 years ago or so, Joe Madden uh, got into a position of power and started to, to do more and more of them. Uh, I think most of us remember Barry Bonds having to deal with a lot of shifts as that became kind of a normal thing. And about seven years ago, they really took off. It became uh, emblematic of the, uh, the stat head movement uh, in, the, in the past decade or so to, to have your fielders standing in all sorts of funny places. And so shifts are up, I think, uh, 
uh, like about a thousand percent over the last seven years. Uh, there will be more shifts by like the White Sox this year than there were in all of baseball uh, in 2010 or 2011. I'm, I'm kind of like pulling those numbers uh, from my memory, so they might be slightly wrong, but uh, they're all over the place. All right. So now that you've established what the shift is and how prevalent it's become, let's talk about what the effects actually have been. Um, if we all believe the conventional wisdom that shifts gobble up ground balls and turn them into outs and making baseball more boring, what doesn't indicate, or what are the contraindications there? Well, actually, shifts do gobble up ground balls and turn them into outs. They they do exactly they that. Work. Yes, they work. This this the spray charts that show where a hitter uh, is going to hit the ball uh, do tend to predict where the hitter hits the ball, and having more fielders there tends to, to make more outs. And so, in 2016, uh, we had fairly limited data on the shift. We had just gotten access to Sports Info Solutions. Uh, data which tracks uh, what happens when the shift is on. And the the data showed that it was working, that a lot of ground balls were turning into outs, that batters who had the shift on them uh, saw a lower percentage of their of their batted balls turn into hits. And it was concluded that these were really successful, uh, which makes sense, because otherwise, why would teams do them? But uh, in the last couple of years, we have gotten access to pitch-by-pitch shift data through StatCast, and the results are that, in fact, singles go down, but everything else goes up. There are more home runs. There are a lot more walks. The key thing seems to be that there are a lot more walks uh, and there are more hitters counts when the shift is on, that pitchers are not as good at pitching when the shift is on, or rather, perhaps they are not as confident pitching. And so they throw fewer strikes. They throw fewer pitches in the zone. They throw fewer fastballs. And that leads them to throw more balls, which has an effect greater than the single that you might pick off uh, every couple of games because of the shift. So, so this is weird to me because you'd think that overloading the defense on one side would increase a pitcher's confidence to just pump it down the middle or on the inside corner to a left-handed batter to get the ball into play because I've got an abundance of fielders ready to, to gobble them up. I mean, you know, this is obviously not statistically based, but how do you account for pitchers nibbling and walking Ooh, I've got a theory. guys? What's your theory, oh, Josh? Yeah, let's hear Josh's theory. I think that it's still strange to pitchers who came up before this was common. So if the shift continues for another 10 or 20 years, I'd be fascinated to see what the data is by pitchers who grew up with the shift going on in high school or um, in the minors. Which is a thing, by the way. It is a thing now, yeah. But it's going to feel weird and you're not going to like know, you know, maybe it's because the players fundamentally don't trust, uh, you know, analytics. Change or analytics. In, in, in some sense or they don't, um, they're not sure if they trust it yet. So what do you think of that theory, Sam? Yeah, I totally I agree with you. I think that there is something that feels very exposed about it because you are used to having uh, a guy standing over there. This big gap of empty space is terrifying. Uh, it's especially terrifying if you aren't used to it. I think that there's a possibility that this is about getting used to it. But I'm also not totally sure that you ever get used to it. There's it is a lot of empty space. It feels very vulnerable. Uh, it feels especially vulnerable because um, you, you don't even like, like a batter can hit it there if they want to. Now they can't hit it there 
super efficiently. I'm not really a believer that batters could beat the shift by going uh, the other way every time, but they can do it sometimes. And as a pitcher, it's very scary to think that this batter has this wide open space. Um, it, it, we, uh, you know, to go back, you know, you guys know that Ben Lindbergh and I ran a baseball team in 2015, an independent baseball team. And a big part of what we did was, was shifting, implementing shifts. And it is, it should make you more confident to have more guys standing where the ball goes. The whole point is that it turns more balls into outs, but anytime we had a shift on, it was absolutely terrifying for us, uh, (laughs) Because you look like of, a dumbass if it doesn't work. You do, but you all, I mean, you just look out there and it feels more vulnerable. It doesn't feel right, you know? Like there's something about it that feels naked. I mean, nudity is a social construct, right? Like <laughs> the whole point of nudity is like this thing that we have determined is usually covered up is now not covered up. And the so you've like sort of taken off this piece of clothing that you are used to having there. And it feels awkward, man. It's, it feels really weird. There was a story last week um, wherein Jason Worth went on a podcast and talked about how nerds are ruining baseball. What he said exactly was when they come down, these kids from MIT or Stanford or Harvard, wherever they're from, they've never played baseball in their life. When they come down to talk about stuff like shifts, should I just bunt it over there? They're like, no, don't do that. We don't want you to do that. We want you to do a homer. It's just not baseball to me. We're creating something that's not fun to watch. It's boring. You're turning players into robots. Now, there's part of that, a huge part of that, that's just like, you know, nerd punching and the classic sabermetrics wars. But I think there's something a little bit more interesting about what Worth is saying, and it gets back to exactly your point just now, um, Sam, is that you need players to buy in to what um, to what you're doing. And there might be, you know, even if they claim to be buying into it, there might be something psychologically where they don't all the way, and that's going to affect their performance on the field. And if you haven't played baseball, that seems like a legitimate thing for a player to say. Uh, sure. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I am, I, I don't actually know where I come down on this because I find Jason worth and the way that he said it to be a, a not very convincing. Well, he's witness. not a great, me- he's not a great <laughs> messenger. I'm not trying yeah. to say that he's a great messenger, but what I am trying to say is that I think it's really powerful about the shift to note that with our, with the numbers and with our eyes, both the, both tests, the stats and the, the eye test, it was working. But yep. the, the effects that weren't visible are the ones that maybe suggest that it didn't work. And there's all these different examples of this throughout baseball. When I did a piece on the 20th anniversary of Moneyball, Sam, what you told me was, if we look back like, you know, a couple decades, nothing that we thought about how baseball worked is what we think about how baseball works now. And yet we have all this confidence that what we're doing in the moment is correct. And so well, but we have to have confidence in the moment that it's correct or, or we're not going to be impelled to implement these kinds of changes or adjustments. Right. But that's human I guess, nature. So what I'm saying is that when somebody like Jason Worth says acts like a dumbass and says dumbass stuff. I think we still need to be humble about the fact that he might know more about baseball than somebody than somebody who is does not talk and act like a dumbass. Well, he might even be right in a more macro sense, Josh, in as much as it is possible to overmanage and overanalyze something and 
the tendency here might be to over-respond, and I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing with Rob Manfred, the commissioner, suggesting that we need to do something to legislate the shift out of the game or we're considering changes because this is really hard to legislate. As Emma Bacheleri did a piece for Sports Illustrated about how you would possibly implement changes that would regulate what teams are allowed to do regarding shifts, I mean, what are you going to do? Like put painted zones on the field where players are going to stand. I mean, it seems to me, Sam, that the way the shift gets responded to is with, as with everything else in the history of baseball, some sort of countermeasure that's devised by players or coaches or front offices to counter what's happening. Yeah, I I think that you could do a fairly simple uh, legislative fix, which is just limit how many guys can go on one side of the field. Uh, but I find the discussion of removing them kind of embarrassing personally. I think it's, I, I don't, I just don't get how uh, a strategy that is fairly non-disruptive and that the players and, um, you know, the teams have come up with themselves in order to, uh, to, to win the game based on the rules that have been in play for 150 years uh, is somehow uh, like uh, unethical or un, un, unsporting or, or whatever the case may be that you would require a legislation. But Sam, is there a risk that if we just say, all right, the game will fix itself and countermeasures will be put in place that um, we'll be missing the real issue here, which is the game being less fun to watch? And as we've gone into the era of the strikeout, and the home run, this is another instance where, you know, one of the things that's interesting for a fantasy is a base hit. And if, okay, the shift is maybe not working by suppressing offense, but if the thing that's increasing is walks, that's making the game less interesting. It's making the game less fun to watch. And so if the shift is here to stay, stay because it's like basically a wash or because it's like only slightly better or worse for um, the offense or defense. Are we ignoring the fact that it's like actually actively worse for the baseball fan? And that it's okay to tinker with even the most fundamental rules to improve the quality of game, to the make quality it more entertaining. of the game as it's being played in the current moment. Basketball does this all the time. Yeah, I think that the, the the thing is that about ninety nine percent of the um, of the cause of this uh, this problem that people have identified of of pace and, and lack of balls put in play is that it's too it, pitchers are really good at getting strikeouts. They pitch to strikeouts, and uh, and there are too many strikeouts. And that is that's the cause. That's the the big change that has happened. That's the radical change that has happened over the last couple decades. It's like shocking to see it. Uh, to see how many strikeouts there are relative to historical levels. I mean, there's there's going to be probably 100 starting pitchers this year who strike out more batters uh, per nine innings than Bob Gibson w- did in his you know in his career high. Um, it's that is the 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 main contributing factor here, and that's much more complicated. And so instead, I think there people are talking about outlawing the shift because it is a much simpler fix that will have almost no effect whatsoever on the, the broad trend but it, but that you're it's discussing. A, it's a cosmetic fix that people can then point to and say, hey, we're doing something about this. Yeah. If you're talking in a meeting about things that you could do and that one comes up, it doesn't feel quite so daunting. We will fix strikeouts in another segment on another show. Can but... I just say before we go that I was the victim of a shift in 1977? Yeah. 
we moved up from Little League to full-size field. There was no in-between in my town. Basically, they employed a seven-man infield because yeah. <laughs> I was very small. I got thrown out from center field on a, on a base hit. And yeah. that's still uh, traumatized you still to this day. Yeah. Uh, I Sam- had some kickball shifts, too. <laughs> Everybody in. Yeah. Sam Miller, kickball shift victim, writes for ESPN. He's also the co-author of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Thank you, Sam. Anytime. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Now it is time for After Balls. And if you watched any of the golfer the weekend, you might have heard them going on and on about the Zoisha grass. Is that legal? Good in Scrabble. Is it? Yep. Uh, at Bell Reef Country Club in St. Louis. A 1992 Chicago Tribune article. Z-O-Y-S-I-A. Z-O-Y-S-I-A noted that the 92 PGA at Bell Reeve was the first tour event ever conducted on Zoysia fairways and trees and that Arnold Palmer said the fairways might be too good and they might not test the shot-making ability of the field. I guess maybe when Zoysia does one of those assessments um, at a job, like a job interview, it's like, yeah, one of my worst qualities is that I'm just too good at being grass and I don't provide enough of a test for the players. (laughs) I will admit that I knew Zoysia was good in Scrabble, but I didn't know what it meant until this weekend. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Learn something from watching golf. Um, it is a hardy uh, strain of grass, according to the Tribune. can withstand heat and cold. Only drawbacks are that it stays green for only about four months, May through August, and must be sodded at the hefty 1992 price of $3 per square yard. Get your Zoysia while it lasts. Now... Up to four sixty per square yard, according to uh, the website topturfsod.com. Stefan, what is your Zoisha? I imagine if you had played Zoisha, you might have fared uh, better in the tournament. Not that you were fared horribly. If I played Zoishas, Zoishas, yeah, for a bingo, that would have been great. That would have been sweet. Yeah, someday, someday. Talk, talk to me about Scrabble. All right, in your, I did not Zoysha. play Zoisha. I am back from Buffalo, the home of the 2018 North American Scrabble Championship. I could totally just discuss my personal highlights of the week. I really could. Uh, The daughter finished a crazy good 18 and 13 in Division II, her first appearance in Division II. I finished, though you dissed me earlier in the show, it was a better than expected 14 and 17 in my first appearance in Division I. (laughs) Better than expected by whom? There are computers that tell you how many games you're supposed to win. And how many were you supposed to win? I was supposed to win 11.4. So you outperformed expectations. I did. Sweet. I salvaged a nightmare 6-15 and 15 start with an 8-2 and two run over the final two days. I played five of the top 26 players in North America and lucked out to beat two of them. And just one, one example of a turn, I played the word Copra, C-O-P-R-A, simultaneously forming E-G-O-W-O-P-N-O-R and P-A for 47 points in an endgame drew a challenge, and then played D Beards from a D for 89 points and the win. That's great. Copra is like a 
coconut meat. Yeah, that was really sweet. After the event, though, I got to thinking about the greatest sports comebacks of all time because what happened at the 2018 North American Scrabble Championship might not make a Bleacher Report listicle (laughs) of the greatest comebacks ever, but it will definitely make mine. I ruled out minor league baseball's Clinton Lumber Kings overcoming a 16-run deficit against the Burlington Bees in 2014. And also ruled out the Plano East football team recovering three onside kicks to go from down 41-17 to up 44-41 against John Tyler in the last three minutes of a Texas high school football game in 1994. And I ruled that one out because... John Tyler returned the last kickoff for a touchdown to win. So that left two more appropriate analogs for what happened in Buffalo. The 2004 Red Sox winning four straight over the Yankees and Oracle Team USA down eight to one to Emirates Team New Zealand reeling off eight straight to take the 2013 America's Cup. Who could forget? Here's what happened in Scrabble. Heading into the final three games last Wednesday, Nigel Richards has a 22-6 and record. Nigel is the greatest Scrabble player who has ever walked the planet. Five North American championships, three world championships, countless other big wins, more tournament earnings than anyone by far. Nigel has something like an eidetic memory. He can recall images of words on pages that he's seen just once. A couple of years ago, he reportedly spent nine weeks learning the French dictionary. He doesn't speak any French. And then won the French Scrabble Championship. In addition to all of that, he nearly always makes the correct play as deemed by computer analysis. As Oliver Rader documented for 538 a few years ago, Nigel statistically is a total outlier in Scrabble, a scoring machine who can usually only be stopped by the luck of the tiles. The only player who can catch Nigel in Buffalo is G.I. Joel Sherman of the Bronx. He has a 20-8 and record. One of those wins was against me. Joel is one of the main characters in Word Freak. And with one world and one North American title himself and the highest tournament game ever, 803 points, he's a legend in Scrabble as well. But winning three straight from Nigel is statistically very unlikely, which even Joel acknowledged to me heading into the showdown. But Joel gets some endgame breaks. He wins the first game, 485-461. Then he draws the bag, as we say in Scrabble, and wins the second game, 451 to 422, in a game that isn't as close as the score indicates. The deciding game is tight from the start. Nigel Bingo's first with Leafist, L-I-E-F-E-S-T. Leaf means willing. Joel bounces back with Lurdans, L-U-R-D-A-N-S, a lazy or stupid person, Lurdan. Nigel counters with Alidad, A-L-I-D-A-D-E, a device used in angular measurement, and maintains a lead of about 40 heading into the endgame. Unlike the rest of us humans, Nigel calculates candidate moves almost instantly and plays confidently. He rarely, if ever, analyzes games once they're over, the way the rest of us also do. He plays without emotion, regret, or second-guessing. Once a position is done, Nigel told me 20 years ago, it is done. Against Joel now, Nigel lays down Echoey for just 15, creating a lucrative spot for Joel to play AWN for 34 and slice the lead to two points. Joel leaves the letters N, R, S, and T on his rack. And then Joel is blessed by the tile gods. He pulls a G, an S, and the last blank out of the bag and he's got two unblockable spots to play. Did you figure it out, Josh? Sorry, can you say that again? N-R-S-S-T-G blank. 
Strings. Joel plays strings. And he wins the game 439 to 399. That was uh, a word that I've heard of. Yeah. I could have gotten that. You could have. All right. When the news spreads among the 400 players in the room, people literally gasp. I literally gasp. G.I. fucking Joel did it. I was rooting for him all the way, except for when he drew both blanks and all four S's to crush me in round five. The G.I., for those who haven't read Word Freak, is short for gastrointestinal. And that's just one of Joel's physical attributes. He is short and bald, kind of looks like Montgomery Burns, but he's much nicer, and schlumpy. There are bags under his eyes, and he wouldn't mind me saying any of that. Joel calls me book boy. I call him big bro. And yeah, there's luck in Scrabble, and even Nigel Richards makes mistakes. But I was so excited for Joel's epic comeback, and I gave him a big hug afterwards and told him so. The next day, Nigel, who turned 50 last year, he's a few years younger than Joel, biked with two younger players to Niagara Falls for another tournament. Nigel won 16 of his first 17 games there. And with two games to go, only one player could catch him. 2017 North American champ Will Anderson, whom we talked to on this show a year ago. Will drew both blanks in both games and won the great Nigel Richards lost five tournament clinching games in a row. Down goes Nigel. Down goes Nigel. And I'm sure it didn't bother him one bit. Josh, what's your Zoisha? The next great American track and field star is an 18-year-old. He just graduated from Lafayette High School in Louisiana. He's an incoming freshman at LSU. He has set a bajillion age group records. And over the weekend, he won a huge competition and became one of the all-time great performers in his sport. Let's take a listen. And there is Mondo Duplant, who's at 6.05, has already bettered the world under 20 record. And oh my God, he goes clear. Six meters and five centimeters. He's just 18 years of age. He can't believe it himself. I can't believe well, who it. Who can? I if, can't believe it. <laughs> if you haven't figured it out already, our hero's name is Mondo. Armand Mondo Duplantis. He is a pole vaulter. And unfortunately, for those who enjoy watching Americans win gold medals, he competes for his mother's native country of Sweden. That clip you heard was from Sunday's European Championships, where he cleared the fourth highest bar ever in the history of the pole vault and the second highest ever outdoors at 6.05 meters, which is 19 feet, 10 and 3 sixteenths inches. One of the guys Duplantis beat on Sunday was the world record holder, the Frenchman Renaud Lavalini, who cleared 6.16 meters in 2014 to set the world record. That record had been held for a long time by Sergei Bubka, that's 20 feet and two and a half inches. On Sunday, Lavalini only uh, could manage 5.95 meters. Uh, by the way, uh, Mandu Duplantis had uh, Lavalini's poster on his wall as a kid, meaning like last year. So Jerry Longman did a profile of Duplantis last year for the Times, mentioned the poster on his wall. Uh, he was called the Tiger Woods of pole vaulting in that story, meaning that he was a prodigy, not the other Tiger Woods stuff. Um, at that point, he had just set a national high school record of 19 feet, four and a quarter inches. That also happened to be the best clearance by anyone in the whole world at that point in the year. 
He started vaulting with a broomstick in his living room, landing on an ottoman. Longman wrote that while many vaulters prefer to drive the front knee high and let the trail leg swing upward like a pendulum, Duplantis believes he generates more momentum by swinging both legs in a retro style employed by vaulters who once used rigid poles made of bamboo and aluminum. At the 2020 Olympics, where they will not be using bamboo poles, he will be competing for Sweden because according to his mother, who is a Swedish personal trainer, as mothers often are, uh, they spent their summers in Sweden when he was growing up and he became comfortable with its youth sports development system. Uh, I mentioned he's going to be at LSU because this guy really needs to be put through the rigors of uh, the NCAA college competition. But what I like about this dude is that he sounds like he's from Lafayette, as all Swedes should. And he's also known in the sport for being an encyclopedia of pole vaulting history and technique, which I think you can get a sense of in this clip from the Showtime podcast. That's S-H-E-A-U-X, of course. Let's take a listen. There's so many different ways to pole vault because it's such a technical event and it's so uniquely technical. And so, um, I mean, there's just, it's just endless ways to, to pole vault. And yeah. so I kind of lean more on that French style of pole vaulting. I mean, the French were like the first ones to really pole vault. So that's Mondo Duplantis. Enjoy him in the five seconds that NBC is going to devote to the pole vault in 2020 because my man is going to win gold. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Our intern is Meredith Ellison. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.